And so I, I even think, just to think, and when you hear the phrase Good Samaritan, I think immediately you think, this has something to do with love, this has something to do with uh, compassion. But I think for a lot of people, when you hear the idea of the Good Samaritan, you just think, I already know that. I already know that um, story. But, but I will say this, that I believe the story um, in its pure form is really controversial and really meaningful and I think really surprising in a lot of ways. So I'm really excited to get uh, into it. If you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 10, we're gonna begin in verse 25 and we're gonna go all the way to verse 37. We're gonna read the whole thing and then go through it. I'm reading from the NIV this evening. It says this, on what, uh, am I right? Yeah, okay. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Jesus says in verse 28, you have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, and then he tells this parable, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Verse 32, so to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. 33, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw, saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Uh, which of these three uh, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Okay, so I think in a lot of ways, we as 21st century Christians in America, we don't really grasp how shocking uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan uh, is. To the original audience, you just have to understand this, and I'm going to hopefully prove it to you, but this was a story that was deeply shocking and deeply uh, offensive. In fact, to say the Good Samaritan was kind of like an oxymoron. You'll know what an oxymoron is. It's, it's basically like a figure of speech that appears to contradict itself. Uh, just to be uh, dumb, I have, I Googled, and these are the top oxymorons that I personally appreciated. So here we go. These are oxymorons. They appear to contradict themselves. Act naturally. Um, pretty, pretty ugly. This guy's pretty ugly. Almost exactly. Uh, same difference. Uh, the Great Depression. True. Uh, awfully good. Uh, it's his only choice and larger half. Okay, so so if you think so if you think about like this this phrase that it's just like it doesn't even make sense to the original audience. It's kind of the same thing to to say to say a good Samaritan is like saying the larger half. It doesn't even make any uh, sense. And preachers have used lots of phrases over the years to kind of try to convey like how um, how serious and how gut wrenching the phrases. I've heard lots of sermons where people uh, pastors have said this is kind of like saying Jesus telling the story of like the good Al Qaeda. Member. I think that's, 
I, I think that's not a perfect analogy for a couple obvious reasons, but um, I hear what they're trying to do. I think that they're trying to get this like gut level reaction where it's just like you just hear about him being the hero of the story and it just feels wrong to you. It's just something, he's just trying to get your skin uh, to crawl. And so I want you, when he talks about the Samaritan, it's something that's really, really deep, this hatred that runs in the Jews. Uh, So a lot of people think when you're talking about the Samaritans and the Jews that we're just talking about racism, that the Jewish, the Jews were just racist. That's certainly true uh, to a certain extent. Uh, basically, the idea of the Samaritans is this, is the Jewish people, when they were in captivity, well, some of them married and had kids with their captors. And so they were kind of like um, half-breeds. In essence, they were half-Jewish and half-Gentile. And it was it was like them trading uh, on their own people. But it's not just uh, their nationality. You think about like the Samaritan faith also came out of the Jewish faith, but it kind of merged into something different. So these were people who um, had a different ethnicity and people who had a different um, religion. And so there was this deep hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. I, I I've, I've heard, and I think it's pretty, pretty good. It's, I think it's pretty true. It's sort of similar to maybe modern day, how you would imagine the Israelis and the Palestinians, that it's not just about one incident, but it's about generations of hatred that's built up, right? And it's not just about one person. It's not about one leader. It's not about one family. It's just this deep embedded hatred that has lasted for a really long time. I've got some um, examples about the Jews and the Samaritans. They're not on the screen, but just uh, as I read them. Listen to this. Jews called the Samaritans a herd, not a nation. A herd. I think that's pretty, uh, pretty savage. A common Jewish proverb was this. A piece of bread given by a Samaritan is more unclean than swine's flesh, which is unclean if you're a Jew. Uh, the worst insult that a Jew could use was to call someone a Samaritan. For example, in John eight forty eight, 48, uh, the, the angry Pharisees, Uh, accuse Jesus, and this is what they say to Jesus. Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? So they're accusing him. They're trying to insult him by calling him a Samaritan, right? Uh, There was an official Jewish prayer, listen to this, in the synagogue that asked God to not forgive the Samaritans. So I think that, like, like we would all gather together and ask, like, God, forgive our sins and not theirs, right? Like, use all the forgiveness on us, but don't forgive those guys. Um, 128 BC, so this is 150 years before this, the leader of uh, Judea, uh, John Hyrcanus, uh, completely destroyed the Samaritan capital. So they went and destroyed it. Listen to this. A few years before Jesus told this story, listen to this. Some Samaritans broke into the Jewish temple and spread human feces all over it to desecrate it. So I don't know if you can imagine what that would be like if, imagine people from a different nationality and from a different religion, like breaking into this church and rubbing human feces all over the room, you know what I mean, in order to defile. So it's like, this pretty... I think that's just pretty deep-seated hatred. And so um, I was really trying to communicate like in an accurate way, a way that I think. So this is my illustration. That's not perfect, but I think it's pretty good. So um, have you guys, I'm sure probably most of you have heard of Westboro Baptist Church, right? These guys are like the, the most famous idiots in the world. Uh, 
I'm sure you probably, there's like, there's like 20 or 30 of them. Um, they all kind of come from this same, this same town. But I just think one of their main gifts to humanity is that we all agree that they are the worst of the worst, right? So it's sort of unifying. And then no matter what race, religion, politics, like we all agree that Westboro is the worst, but there's like, yeah, 20, 30, maybe 40 of them at this point. Almost all are like from these same families that they just raise the kids. And I've, I'm sure you've probably actually seen a lot of them in the news that some of these kids, as they continue to grow up, they're actually leaving Westboro and speaking out against it, which I consider to be pretty brave. Um, you know. But they're always in the headlines, right, Westboro, because they're, they're going and they're protesting soldiers um, funerals, right? The idea is there's too many homosexuals in the United States, and so God, um, in, in a way of punishing us, is bringing us war and killing our soldiers and killing um, our kids. There's some real famous examples of this. There was a 9-11 memorial event at Ground Zero, and they went and they held signs that, that said this, thank God for 9-11, or even this past, this past week, I'm sure you all heard about the tragedy um, shooting Parkland, Florida. Well, they've come out online with their own hashtag, which is this God sent the shooter. So um, yeah, I think they're pretty horrible in a lot of ways, obviously. And so actually a few years ago, I watched some documentaries, two different documentaries on Westboro Baptist. And they're really surprising, I think, in a lot of ways. One of the reasons is this, is just because they... Um, they, they appear to be people who in a way are trying to follow Jesus. You know what I mean? Like they, say, they, they would say that they're followers of Jesus and they actually quote a lot of scripture. I believe disingenuously, I believe erroneously, but I, but I mean, it's everywhere is scripture, everywhere is Jesus in all of their materials. And so I wonder if you could just do a thought experiment with me here. And imagine, imagine, like, let's just give them the benefit of the doubt for a second and say, let's pretend that they actually are trying to follow Jesus. I doubt it. But let's pretend, okay? Let's pretend they're following Jesus. And let's pretend Jesus would come to them and sit them down. And, and let's say they really believed that this is Jesus showing up to them in person, right? And so, so he's sitting them down, trying to teach them where they went wrong. And he sits them down and he tells them a parable, and he tells, the, he tells them this parable. He tells them a parable of this man who gets beat up. And then there's this fundamentalist Christian who's never done anything sexually deviant in his entire life. And he walks upon him and he walks around, right? And then another, like a member of Westboro Baptist Church walks up and he sees the man and he walks around him. Man's never done anything sexually wrong in his whole life. And then like at the climax of the story, uh, when, when the hero is, being uh, announced, he, here comes like a member of the village people. And I don't, I don't mean like the, I don't mean like a member of an indigenous tribe. I mean like the village people, right? YMCA, I, like, chaps, um, studded leather collar, right? Who comes along um, and sees this man who is in a ditch within one uh, inch of his life, and he's the guy who comes and saves the day. So, uh, like, um, can you imagine how Westboro might react at such an idea? And I honestly think, I honestly don't believe that that's that much of a stretch here, because he's not even making, he, hear, hear this, he's not making a point about the morality or the religion of the Samaritan, 
right? He's making a point about the right action in this particular situation. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here is, is he's trying to, with his audience, his Jewish audience, he's trying to get this guttural, instinctual, just repulsion of this person. And then he goes and he paints the person as the hero of the story. By the way, I really hope that Jesus actually literally does this to Westboro someday. I find that, I would really like that. Um, but, but I don't know if you can imagine with me uh, for a moment, like, like who is that for you? Who is it that in, in your own life, and don't say nobody, who is it for you that might get like a gut level repulsion? Like clearly it can't be those people, right? Well, like whatever that is for you, just imagine that I think Jesus is going out of his way to find for his Jewish audience the most despicable group of people in their own eyes that they can possibly think of. And he comes and he makes them the hero of the story. Okay, so here's the story. We're gonna go through it briefly. Uh, The story is this, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. It says this, on the occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Okay, so this is, he's a lawyer, right? He's an expert in the law. And you just have to understand this, that, that he is not a guy who's earnestly trying to understand Jesus. He's trying to trick him, right? He's trying to like trap Jesus with logic. And he asked this question, teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So I don't know if you can imagine real quick, like who, um, or, or let's pretend someone were to come and ask you that question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and honestly think like, what might you say? I imagine you'd probably say something about like inviting Jesus into your heart, right? Something about possibly a sinner's prayer, um, well, Jesus, what he does is he, he does what he almost always does, which is he answers the question with another question. Uh, he, he says this, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He, the lawyer, answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, to me, that's actually like a pretty good answer, <laughs> especially if you're someone who only has the Old Testament, it's actually pretty progressive, right? I mean, to think like all the laws, I mean, like he even understands that all of the Old Testament ultimately boils down to this simple command of loving God and loving people, right? So it's actually a pretty good answer. And Jesus says as much, verse 28 says this, you've answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Jesus says, bingo, essentially. Uh, verse 29, this is where the story takes a turn. But, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Um, in, in other words, in other words, so who exactly do I have to love? Right? This is like classic legalism, right? Like, like uh, just trying to get hung up on technicalities, right? Like instead of doing the obvious thing, which is like he probably means love everybody. But this guy's basically asking this. He says, Hey, can you just give me a list of my neighbors so that when I see them, I'll love them? But then if the people who are not my name, then I don't have to love um, those guys. And I hope you can see that, you, that we do this all the time. Honestly, I mean, you think about like Jesus, think about the command he, he gives us to love our enemies, right? Love your enemies. And so you think like, well, clearly he can't mean that guy, right? Clearly he doesn't, he's not talking about those, those people. Like, and we all start looking for loopholes. We start looking for exceptions instead of doing the obvious thing, which is loving um, everybody. And so here's the setup of the parable. 
This is verse 30. It says, in reply, Jesus said, and this is the beginning of the parable, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So, okay, so a little bit of backstory here. So there's essentially a 17-mile road going from Jericho to Jerusalem. Yes, I have a map. Here we go. You can actually still uh, drive it today, or you can walk it if, you, if you'd want, but it's 17 miles. And so this was the trip that they were taking. They were starting um, up there in Jericho, and they were heading to Jerusalem, and then they were going from Jerusalem back to Jericho. And this is, this path here, this is a notoriously dangerous um, path. In fact, it, it was famously called the Way of Blood, uh, I have a photo of the way of blood. You can still go. But basically the idea of this is that, is that in this path, the 17-mile path, there's just lots of great places to hide, right? And so, so if someone was like a bandit or a criminal or a murderer and they wanted to like sneak up on someone, this was the perfect place because it was out in the middle of nowhere and there was lots of places to jump out and rob someone. And so, uh, in fact, in fact, the writings in like the early early second, third, fourth century refer to this road as the most dangerous road in the entire Middle East. And in fact, you can actually read about it. You can even read all, all the way up to the 17th, 18th century that people, there's reports of people being robbed and murdered on this road, tourists. So it's a really dangerous um, road. And so, so the man is going from one to the other on the way of blood. And then this brings us to scene number one. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Okay, so this is a priest, and likely they think about this priest is that this was a guy who lived in Jericho, right, top right, but, but worked as a priest in Jerusalem, right? And so he had to make this uh, trek and, and he was likely heading home after a long day's work. And so we have, we have reason to believe that this guy was probably a pretty devout priest. I mean, this guy is riding a donkey, probably, and he's riding 17 miles to and from work. So this took a long time. Like this was a long uh, trip. And keep in mind that at this time, the priestly duties were essentially helping the poor, caring for the widow, caring for the orphan. And so he's done all of that and he's heading home. I don't know if you guys have ever just like had a real long day at work and then you just want to like go home. Anyone ever like been exhausted at work and driven by a homeless guy and you're like, I don't even have time to think about any of that. That's, to me, I believe that that's what's happening here. It's just like this man has been caring for the poor all day. He's a priest and he comes upon this man. Also, not only that, not only is he probably tired from working as a priest, you have to understand that these guys had very strict rules on who and what they could and could not touch, right? Because if, if these people, let's say they go up and, and they, they end up touching him and he turns out to be dead, right? Well, then he's all of a sudden unclean. And, and, and it's probably hard to tell, right? Like the text talks about, essentially the words say that he's like on death's doorstep, right? So he's just laying there. So it's hard to know if this guy is dead or alive. And so this, this priest is having to decide whether or not he wants to be somebody who wants to go up and feel the man's pulse. 
right? Like, like, does he want to do that? And for him, it's a cost because as a priest, if he gets within four cubits, so it's about like six feet, if he gets within six feet of this man and he turns out to be dead, well, then he is unclean until he purifies himself. And so for at least one week, this man, he can't perform any of his priestly duties. He has to go and he has to save up money and purchase a red heifer and he has to kill it and then he has to burn it. And then with the ashes of the red heifer, he has to purify um, himself if the man turns out to be dead. And also he can't collect tithes and offerings for like until, until this is all planned out. So there's also this financial consequence of this man going and uh, touching this guy. And, so, and then there's also this sense of, of he, if he's not able to do his priestly duties, then who's going to care for the poor people, right? Who's going to care for the orphans? Who's going to care? And so maybe there's this sense of like, well, don't the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one? I can just picture, I can just picture this guy looking at him and saying like, he looks dead to me. Let's just move on, right? I, I, I'm positive that guy's dead, right? But, but he just moves on. And so I, for me, it's important to understand that as we go through these different scenes, that these guys who come and pass by are not necessarily bad guys. And that's important for you because if, if, you, if you picture these guys as just coming upon someone who's suffering and they're just thinking, ew, gross, you know, like you're not gonna, you're not gonna identify with them. You're not gonna see yourself in the story, which of course is the idea. This is a man who has done a lot of good and he's, he's committed his life to doing a lot of good things, but he's just real tired. Right, and he's just already done enough good for the day. So he passes by. Okay, scene number two, verse 32. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Okay, so this is a Levite. So a Levite is essentially, he's like a priest, but he's not as quite high level. So if he, he has the same concerns about becoming unclean, but the uh, punishments aren't quite as strict. Um, but the way that I imagine this going down is this, is I picture him walking and seeing the priest like far up ahead, right? This is, this is like the head honcho, the main, the leader of the faith community. And he sees the leader pass around the man. And so he thinks, well, surely then I'm supposed to also pass around the man, right? Because he's just like the assistant uh, kind of guy. And I hope you can see yourself in that too, because for me, I know that it's, it's real common that for a lot of people, we go and we read the teachings of Jesus and are completely scandalized by them, how over the top they are um, and how challenging they are about loving people. And then we go and then we let, essentially, we let the evangelical leaders of the day set the moral compass. You know what I'm saying? So like you read the teachings of Jesus and then you're like, well, Franklin Graham does it. It's fine for me or whoever. I don't know. You, you know what I mean? Instead of, instead of it being like something that's true for you, you, you see the priest pass by the man. And so you assume that for you, it's okay to pass by the man. And I think this gets especially tricky when almost all politicians claim to be Christian, right? <laughs> then it gets real tricky because of course we honor them and esteem them as elected officials, but they're in no way qualified to tell you what it's like to be a Christian, 
right? Like they're not, they're not the barometer for you when it comes to treating the rest of the world. And so I hope you can see yourself in um, this second man too, is that not only has the priest gone around because he's so busy, but there's also another person that was influenced by a religious leader that used that as an excuse for his own bad behavior. Okay, scene number three, this is the last scene, and this is where the twist comes. And let me say this. I believe that the story would be controversial enough if it was essentially a Samaritan, a disgusting, horrible Samaritan who gets hurt. And then the Jew comes and saves the day, right? That'd be controversial enough because at least, but at least the Jew gets to be the good guy of the story, right? At least they get to be the hero of their own parable. But it is so much worse than that. Verse 33, but a Samaritan who he tra- as he traveled came to where the man was and when he saw him, he took pity on him. By the, word, this word, uh, by the way, this word pity is the same word that's oftentimes translated uh, compassion, So he has compassion on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which one of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is a really interesting parable because this is one of the few parables that Jesus teaches that has um, a clear instruction at the end. A lot of times there's just, it's just the parable and then it's just over and you're just left wondering. But this is a parable that ends with a really clear instruction, which is this, go and do likewise, right? Who's the hero? It's the third guy, go and do likewise. Um, and so I, I, just, I think it's even worse. Can, if you can imagine, imagine Westboro Baptist hearing the story and then the, the point of the story is this, go and be like the village people guy, right? Like, like go and do likewise. Is it still a mystery to anyone why they wanted to kill Jesus? Right, like consistently. And I just think it's frustrating and I've told you this before, it's frustrating for them and I'm sure it's, it's frustrating for me too, is one thing that's, frustrating about Jesus is this, is that, is that I'm always able to identify who my enemy is, and then Jesus comes and he turns around and he makes them the hero of all his stories, right? It's just like annoying. I don't know if you can imagine me doing that all the time. Like imagine that I'm always telling a story about corrupt, horrible, immoral, deviant Christians, and then like a heroic Muslim comes in and saves the day at the end of all my sermons. Probably at the end of the day, you'd start thinking, See, I need to you need to check your alliances, buddy, right? But that's what Jesus does, right? He keeps, he, he ends up making the most surprising people uh, the hero of his stories. Um, and, and really the idea here, again, he's not saying the Samaritans are better than the Jews. He's not saying anything like that. What he's doing is he's, is he's doing this. He's replacing these legalistic systems with mercy, that's what he's doing, right? All that, I can't touch this guy. I can't because I'm gonna have to purify myself. All of this legalistic stuff. He's just replacing all of that with just simple mercy. And so I have three points for you. And then we'll receive communion. Three points on the parable of the Good Samaritan. Number one is this, true generosity is displayed in the interruptions. I want, I want you to maybe think about your own charity if you'd be willing. Think about your own charity in maybe two, two different ways. Number one would be like your charity in the context of church, right? Like I think, um, I, honestly, given enough time 
anyone who's in a church community involved, like a member of a church, I believe is supposed to contribute in some way. For some people, I think that's going to be a financial way, like tithing, right? Giving an offering, something like that. Other people, it's going to be like volunteering, right? I think, I think for you to like go and volunteer for outlet childcare and caring for kids, for families that like maybe you don't even know, like I think that's absolutely a valid um, action when it comes um, to this. I do, I do. I think giving to a church that, that does a lot of good for the community and feeds the poor is a great way um, to act on this parable. But I, I think that there's a second part of it, which is kind of like your, your life outside of church. Because think about it like this. If your whole expression of charity happens just in like the three hours a week that you're at church, don't you think that's a little bit like the priest? Do you think that's like a little bit like the guy who says like, I already did nice things and now this is my personal time. It's just just a, a little bit similar. The priest was caring for people, right? He was caring for people in this predictable self, like safe kind of on his own terms kind of way. And the question that I wanna present to you, I think maybe the parable would present to us is this, is just like, what are you gonna do with the interruptions? You know what I mean? Like, what are you going to do when somebody needs your help when you were planning on going and seeing a movie? Right? Like, when you're planning on heading home, um, and, and that's, that's where real generosity hits. I mean, imagine, imagine you and your girlfriend, <laughs> I know there's a lot of different kinds of people in here, um, uh, or spouse or boyfriend, whatever, uh, significant other, are going to go on a special date night and you get a call that one of your friends dad is in the hospital right well that's when it really that's when this comes into play right because you're interrupted right you, like you weren't ex- that's not how you were expecting your night to go but i think that's really when generosity um comes and shows its true um color what are you going to do with inter- interruptions and listen i don't like this i don't want to I don't, want to he- I don't want to hear this either. For me, whenever I preach, my wife will tell you, I want to go and hibernate for like 24 hours. Nobody talk to me. <laughs> I, don't want- I don't want to help anybody. Uh, I-, I don't know if you guys know this, but a lot of preachers, when they preach, after they preach, they scurry off into their office, never to be seen of until like Tuesday morning, right? Because it's draining. And so, so I know this, this tendency to like, I've already given, you know, maybe you spent the entire day with Love ABQ. That's like our, that's our citywide mission here at this church. Like you spent all day giving to the poor and then you drive by somebody who needs your help and you just feel like I don't have anything left to give. That's when generosity kicks in. And that's when this story kicks in. It's not, about, it's not about giving when it's easy and when it's convenient and when it's safe and when it's predictable. It's about giving even when it's inconvenient, even when it's in an interruption. Number two is this. You're only as wise as you are merciful. I, th- I, think, I just think the world can be really complicated. Um, and as the, as the world... Um, goes on. It just feels like it's so hard to know enough and to be enough. And preachers like myself, I think, can make Christianity really complicated. God forgive us. And it just feels like there's so much to learn and there's so much to understand. And it's really frustrating and it's kind of crazy. When in reality, like the life that we're called to live, I think in a lot of ways, is really pretty simple. You know, it's just like about loving God um, and loving people. 
like what this parable calls us to, the life, right? How do I receive eternal life, abundant life? Like the life that this parable calls us to live is really simple, but at the same time, it can be really painful. Um, because the idea is this, is that we are recipients of extravagant love. Therefore, we are supposed to be givers of extravagant love. That's the whole, that's the whole um, idea. And insofar as, as your belief system, listen, we all have belief systems, which is like par, part Christianity, part politics, part the way you were raised, part America, right? Part whatever. Like you have this, you have this soup in you right now that is your belief system. And in whatever way your belief system leads you to extravagant generosity in other people, well, you're on the right track. And in, in whatever way your belief system leads you away from extravagant generosity towards other people, you're wrong. Because, because at the end of the day, like, look, I, I'm all for going to seminary. I went, right? I'm all for getting your degree. I got mine all for all of that. It's super cool. But at the end of the day, you just have to understand this, that Christianity ultimately boils down to just unconditional love, right? And like, and you don't need to know more than that. If you want to, if you want to know more, you can know more, but it never goes against that. But just so long as our Christianity is so complex and so convoluted and there's so many different ideas floating around in the space of our heads, you know what I mean? We can just, we can just end up... Um, giving a backdoor to absolutely everything. You know what I mean? Because like every time there's, a, there's like an opportunity to show compassion, like, well, you're gonna hit them with like, you know, um, seed time and harvest or something. Or like, you know, the, the lazy worker, don't work, don't eat. You know what I mean? Like you can, just, you can just find a way around absolutely everything if you forget that at the center of the Christian faith is just unconditional love and unconditional generosity. Um, and, and again, just the world can be so complicated. There's social issues and there's political issues. Think about like this past week, you know, uh, Florida, the school shooting. I just think there's so many people right now that are just yelling their opinions, right? They take the opportunity to yell what they think about this and what they think about that. And listen, I don't know anything about any of that, but I, but I do think that sometimes it can leave the Christian honestly wondering, like, what, what am I to do here? Like, what, what do, I, do, am I, do I need to, like, write something on Facebook? <laughs> like, like, if a tragedy happens and I don't write something on Facebook, am I not responding right, you know? But it's just kind of confusing. Here's what I would say. At the end of the day, when tragedy hits, no matter what, here's the idea. If people are hurting, then you help them. That's the idea, right? If people are hurting, then you help them. And it doesn't need to be more complicated than that. There's no, there's no qualifications. There's no ifs. There's no ands. There's no buts. There's no if you'll meet me halfway. Like, like seriously, forget all of that. Like, that's not what Jesus did, right? Did, you, did Jesus meet you halfway? Did you go halfway? No, right? Like, he took all the steps. Think about the parable. Like, this man who's beat up and gasping for air. Like, does he go halfway? No, he's just, he's just hurting, right? He just needs help. And so, so the man who is the hero of the story, who we're supposed to go and do likewise, he goes all the way. He makes all the steps. He goes above and beyond. The question that the parable asks is this, who is my neighbor? And the answer is this, any human being who's in need. Any human being who is in need. Lastly, number three, and we can go ahead and prepare for communion. Um, and I'll just calm down a little bit. But number three is this, uh, by caring for the needy, we care for Jesus. 
So we actually talk about this idea, which is really foreign to a lot of people. We actually talk about this um, every week here. You think about um, our prayer for the poor, right? We, we, we say this every week as we close service, by caring uh, for the needy, we care uh, for you. And I made up, I wrote the prayer, but I didn't make up that part. In fact, in fact, the idea of there being a direct correlation between how you ca- treat the poor and how you treat Jesus is throughout the ministry of Jesus. Uh, a few scriptures to share with you. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse two. Um, the author of Hebrews uh, says this, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Just for me personally, like in my personal experience, I have found that when there's times when I really need to see Jesus eye to eye, what I oftentimes need to do is I need to look into the eyes of someone who is hurting. Right, like uh, for me, I... um, this past Christmas, I got an email um, that made me all bugged and huffy. So I'm the executive pastor here at this church. So part of what I do is I deal with our wonderful congregants when they have feedback. So I got this email and it was around Christmas. And so the idea was that this guy, uh, I think he had been here a couple times, but because we, we had decorated for Christmas. And so we had a Christmas tree in the foyer. And so he, he accused us of, quote, worshiping Satan because we had a Christmas tree in the foyer. And there was like something about Santa and Satan. Uh, and he talked about Krampus. Like, did you guys know Krampus was a thing? I just thought that was a weird, scary movie. Apparently, it's a real, there's a real theology around Krampus, right? And so I'm, I'm huffy as I am. So I'm writing this email and, you know, I write it and then I delete it and then I write it again and then I delete it. I end up like not sending anything because I'm just huffy. Uh, anyways, that, that night, my wife and I, we go to McDonald's, um, to pick up some dinner just in the drive-thru. And we end up seeing uh, some of our friends there at McDonald's in the drive-thru. Um, JJ, Carson, and Rocky. Oh, JJ, Carmen, and Rocky. They're uh, some people that we see here at the McDonald's every so often on 12th Street. Uh, they're this homeless couple and their dog. And we see them every so often, and whenever we see them, we talk to them and we buy them dinner. We know exactly what they want. We know that JJ wants 10 nuggets of fries and a Coke, uh, and Carmen wants uh, pancakes and a hot chocolate, right? And so, and they don't serve any dog biscuits, unfortunately. Um, so Rocky gets a fry, hopefully. Uh, but, but anyways, so we saw them, so we rolled down our window, we said, hey, we feel like we scare them every time because we <laughs> drive up and we're like, <laughs> they probably think we're the popo. I don't know. We're like, it's fine. Um, so anyways, we drive around, we get them their order, we hop out and um, we just, just sit with them for like literally probably 60 seconds. Just talk to them, ask where they're staying because it's freezing out. Um, and so anyways, touch, uh, you know, uh, give JJ a hug, hop in the car. And we, my point is this, is that like all the Krampus stuff, it, it was amazing how it just, it just like melted off of me. You know what I mean? It was just like, I just stopped caring. I don't know how, but I just stopped caring about Krampus um, at that point because I was like Googling Krampus, you know? 
I don't know, I was just able to forget about Krampus. And I just think, I just think there's this sense, and I wonder if you guys have picked up on this too, that there's, there is a sense of caring for people who are in need allows you to connect with Jesus in like a really pure way. Um, and so I, just, I, I think I just want to encourage some of you that maybe you're in a place where you're feeling like, I don't know, like you, like you need something from God or you're, you're, you're stuck or you're hurting or you're confused or whatever to, to, instead of just spending all your time in that place to like go out of your way and help someone who needs some legitimate help. This is one of the reasons I am such a big fan of jail ministry, right? Like for, for years I went and did a Bible study um, because it, I, I thought I was able to help them maybe, but I knew that it was helping me, right? I knew that going and seeing people who are really hurting who, and, and, and to pray with people, you know, even there was like lockdown and I would just be able to like touch hands through the glass and like pray for these people. It did something for me. Um, and that's not just like my weird advice. That's something that we see over and over, of course, in this parable of the Good Samaritan, but also just in the teachings of Jesus over and over and over and over. And so just link in whatever way you can, like caring, caring for people who need help with caring for Jesus. And I just think some people don't understand Jesus because they've never spent any time with people who are in need. And so it's just foreign to them, right? It's just like this, this story seems odd because they've never experienced this, this feeling that you get, this, this ministering that you, like happens in your own heart uh, when you go and you care for somebody else. Uh, I'm gonna close with this. This is Matthew chapter 25. This is Jesus. One of my favorite texts in the entire Bible. Um, Jesus says this, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are prepared, blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Right, for, and then listen what Jesus says. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. Then they will answer. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He would reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And so I just think that's pretty amazing. And I just think what, what a great way to understand yourself and understand your world 
is to see that it's like, man, God, I, I want to do something really cool for you. And sometimes I'm not sure exactly what to do. Should I, should I, you know, be in the ministry? <laughs> like whatever it is, you're just trying to think, what could I do that's meaningful to God? Like you always have an opportunity to care directly for Jesus by caring for the people who need something. Um, and so as they pass communion, I've had them stand way too long. What I want you to do is maybe just try, if you could, try to see yourself in the story a little bit, right? Try to see yourself maybe in the priest, right? The guy who, yeah, I'm a good guy, but it's just too busy. This is too inconvenient. This is too costly. I've already worked a lot and I just don't have time um, to do that. Or maybe you see yourself in um, the person of the Levite, right? Who you know the right thing to do, but you have allowed people above you to... um, to uh, neuter the love that you know you're supposed to give to people. Um, or or maybe, maybe it's you who uh, you feel like you, you are, you're making good progress. This is where God is leading you. Um, and you're excited about where you are here, but, but maybe you're the Samaritan, even though the world thinks, eh, you're not so great, you're not so perfect. But God is starting to use you in some really great and really beautiful ways. And so just think about yourself. Try to find yourself in that story. Uh, hold on to the communion elements and then we'll receive them uh, together. You guys can go ahead and pass. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been here long. 
you who have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. So come to the table. Allow me to pray for you. Father, we come before you tonight, Lord, just as people who uh, in a lot of ways are not, not, not having not arrived, but we're working towards seeing the world the way that you want us to. And so even though we feel like we have a long way to go, as we discuss even just briefly tonight, the idea of the Good Samaritan and this man who uh, showed mercy, we would ask that you would continue to stir that up in our hearts to show us ways, maybe maybe small ways, maybe big ways, maybe um, maybe ways that feel really huge, maybe ways that feel really insignificant, maybe ways with our own families or with strangers. Uh, we would ask that you would show us um, and reveal to us really cool and creative and beautiful ways uh, to serve our communities and to serve our world. Help us to to make that link, just like we were talking about uh, tonight, that link between caring for the poor and caring for you. We we have such strong hearts for you and and love you and want to be pleasing to you. And so so help us to do that with pure hearts, with pure motives. And Jesus, tonight as we come uh, to your table, again, remembering that we don't deserve any of this, but this is all just a beautiful free gift. We say thank you, and we we receive you, and we receive your kindness and your mercy, and we say thank you. And Jesus, tonight we remember your death, we proclaim your resurrection, and we await your return. We remember your death, we proclaim your resurrection.